0: Katie was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad, just to root for the hometown through every zoo. Katie Blue, on a Saturday, her young foe called to see if she'd like to go to see a show. No, but Miss Kate said, No, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball
1: game, take me out with the Brown.
2: The series had been brilliant, an exemplar of our game. Now deadlocked up at 3-3, three three, the champion left to name. Game 1 had gone 12 innings before the Giants squeaked it out. Next, Peck and Paw's clutch double neatly evened up the bout. The pendulum swung, the Giants won in Game 3, 6-4. Then four. Goslin's four-hit wonder tied the series up once more. In the apple, Bentley homered, leaving Johnson 0-2. While in Game 6, few Giants hit whatever Zachary threw. So, on this day in our capital, game seven us awaits. Bittersweet that until spring, tis our last day with the greats.
1: You really gonna lead with a poem?
2: I was thinking about
1: it. Hey, don't knock it, Maxie. It may not be the way I'd intro a piece, but uh, a few lines of verse to top off a column is very uh, de rigueur these days. Well, by all means, lead with the. A... Oh, how tedious the profession of newsprint writer.
2: Yeah? How's that, tinsel-tonsils?
1: Well, here you fellows are, sweating and fretting over a sentence. Yes,
3: ready boy, it's called writing.
1: I call it Past It's Time. Past It's Time? How old are you, Junior? Old enough to know that people want more than overworded retelling of games. People want to be as close to the moment as possible. In the moment, if possible. Only radio has the power for that, and I'd bring it Sounds them. like somebody's a little drunk with power. Speaking of which, you sure you don't want to snort from this hooch, Orville?
2: No thanks, Mr. Dougal. On the job.
1: Dougs, it's Dougs! And you're still a no-go, Mr. God's Gift to Sports? Much obliged, Dougs, but I don't have the luxury of sitting back and thinking about what happened very slowly, even to stretch the truth. I produce metaphors by the minute, smiles by the second. I must see everything at all times. Almost godlike. Well, I know you're not teetotaling. Much obliged, Do you fellows realize that this is the third year in a row that the World Series will be broadcast on the radio?
2: Say, Freddie, enough with the advertisement for radio already.
1: I'm just giving you a fair warning. The future is fast, and there's nothing faster than radio. And do you know who agrees with me? president calvin coolidge that's who why he's been in office for 14 months and already he's given two addresses by radio and word hasn't he could be making a statement by radio following this game imagine that the president of the united states talking about baseball directly to the people
2: president coolidge may enjoy speaking on the radio but i don't think he's through with newspapers just yet
1: and to what do you ascribe that delusion
2: The fact that I'm interviewing him today during the game.
1: Pardon me? You're pulling our legs.
2: I am not. I am interviewing the president. Today, during game seven of the 1924 World Series.
1: Today? Yes. The president?
2: Yes, of the United States.
1: President Calvin Coolidge. Well, it's not like it's hardy. You. Me. Huh?
2: Great events in history occur. Do witnesses realize the importance? Looking back on my time now, I realize I was one of the lucky ones, privileged to tell the stories of those times. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer. End up interviewing the president? Well, imagine my surprise at reading the telegram I received last night.
0: Change of plans, stop. Sit front row with President Coolidge.
2: President Coolidge?
0: Yes, President Coolidge, stop. Get interviewed, stop. Arriving tomorrow, stop.
2: And there it was. I arrived at the president's box, honestly, the best seats in Griffith Stadium by a fair distance, a solid hour before the first pitch, guessing I'd be early. Instead, this part of the stadium, at least, was already nearly filled to capacity. Good afternoon, Mr. President. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer, Pittsburgh Guardian.
4: Good afternoon, sir. But I was under the impression that Frank Delft would be attending. That was our arrangement.
2: Well, um, gee, Mr. President, he telegrammed me saying that he would arrive later in the game.
4: Did he? Well, that certainly would be in keeping with Mr. Delft's character. Mr. Mulligan, this is Miss Enid Clark, my personal secretary. Pleased to meet you. And the elegant, albeit slightly overstressed lady gazing amorously onto the field of play, is Mrs. Coolidge. Now, if you'll excuse me for this while prior to the ball game, I should like to handle discreetly some matters of state with Miss Clark. After all, if by the grace of taxes levied on worker pay I am privileged to attend the grand game, then I feel all remaining time should be spent in the pursuance of assuring therein.
2: And so I whiled away the time before the senators took the field, engaging in a most polite conversation with the First Lady. Good afternoon, Mrs. Coolidge. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer, Pittsburgh Guardian newspaper.
5: Good afternoon, Mr. Mulligan.
2: So, what do you think of the Senators' chances today?
5: Oh, I'm far too prejudiced in favor of Washington to give a reasonably honest answer to that question. Though I will admit I would feel better if our side's fate were in Mr. Johnson's hands.
2: Walter Johnson, the big train. By season's end 1924, Walter Johnson had played 18 seasons in the big leagues, had pitched in 721 games, and notched 377 wins. And all with the Washington Senators. The old warhorse managed this past season to put in his finest year since 1918, leading the league with 23 wins, 38 starts, and 6 shutouts. For a guy who had an ERA of 2.22 or less in each of his first 12 seasons, Johnson's ERA in 1924 of 2.72 seems no great shakes, but in a sign of the times, was good enough to also lead the American League. Not a single Washington backer could fail to be disappointed that not only had the big train lost in both appearances in this World Series, he wouldn't be available to start today. What do you make of baseball in the 1920s?
5: I am of two minds about our game. No fan can deny the excitement created by magnificent players like Babe Ruth, George Sisler, and our own Mr. Goslin. But I do wonder if pitching is becoming something of a lost art. We may already observe the shift. Mr. Johnson will be 38 years old come November, and he's the last of his generation. Gone are Rue and poor Christy Mathewson.
2: Your knowledge of baseball is outstanding, Mrs. Coolidge.
5: Are you attempting to flatter me? Or are you about to qualify that comment with... for a woman?
2: No, ma'am. Uh, to neither. Your knowledge of baseball is outstanding. Full stop, Mrs. President.
5: Well then, thank you, Mr. Mulligan. You may call me Grace, if you prefer. At least until the ballgame is through. I don't mean to be so critical of pitchers in our day. I'm sure a whole gaggle of greats are waiting to blossom before our eyes. I find Mr. Lyons quite interesting. I saw him pitch nobly against our lads this past summer.
2: What do you think of Charlie Root?
5: Sadly, my exposure to the National League is limited to newspaper coverage, so I cannot say anything of an eyewitness experience, but the reports are quite interesting.
2: Things were going swimmingly. Unfortunately, this was not to last.
5: Hey, Mulligan.
1: Mulligan!
2: Aw, nuts.
1: If I didn't see it myself, I wouldn't believe it. That really is President
0: Coolidge.
4: Our little boy is all grown up. Gentlemen, stop inspecting me as though I were an exotic bird. If you would like to say something, please do.
2: Pardon me, Mr. Coolidge. My, uh colleagues in the press corps were surely just curious. This is Max Mackey of the Boston Post.
4: It's an honor to meet you, sir. And Ernie Dukes. Oh, I know this man. Dukes. That's what you like to call yourself these days, isn't it? Or perhaps some new alias. Why, Mr. President? Do not attempt any of your trickery or illegal shenanigans with me, sir. The longer you are in the presence of decent people, the less secure those people may feel about the whereabouts of their possessions, as well as that of their moral decency. Now please go about your business and consider yourselves fortunate. I don't have the officer of the law just over there eject you from the premises forthwith.
1: You see, this is the kind of disrespect for the honest working man is why I voted for Teddy back in 12. Maybe this year I'll vote
4: for La Follette. Come on, Max. Honest working man? That man is about as honest as Kaiser Wilhelm in a poker game. My goodness, dear. You mustn't let whoever that was work you up so. Here's a piece of advice for you, Mr. Mulligan, and not as your president, but as one who believes in ethical behavior. You'd do best to disassociate yourself with that individual whenever, wherever, and however possible.
0: See, Johnson, I told you she still had it in her. Pardon, sir? I said she's running like a
3: butte. Yes, sir, as though she were new.
0: All you have to do is get her going, and she can go all the way to the Yukon without breaking down once. Pardon, sir? Never mind. Have I told you how much this picture is gonna be worth for the Guardian? A real full-page photograph of President Calvin Coolidge. It's gonna be great. Really? You're gonna give everyone raises? Ah, uh, that's not what I said at all. <coughs> we don't have much longer to go now. It would be easier to tell if the speedometer worked, though. We'll be a bit late. But we'll make it there before games end, I'm sure.
3: If God is watching
0: over us? What's that, Johnson? I said, it feels like God is watching over us. It sure does, Johnson.
2: (laughs) Ever since Woodrow Wilson attended the World Series in 1915, each subsequent presidential attendance apparently demands ever more celebration. It was quite a quick education witnessing from the other side of the press the obligatory overlong photograph shoots, the talk smaller than small talk among the president and managers John McGraw and Bucky Harris, the endless arrangements necessary for the ceremonial first pitch, etc. ad infinitum. President and Mrs. Coolidge naturally handled it all with aplomb, despite their heretofore limited time in the country's brightest spotlight. Nevertheless, they were certainly relieved to be sitting down again, concerned with nothing but whether Virgil Barnes would bring the heat or the bender. Play ball. No one feels pre-game anxiety like the luminaries in the public eye at that time. Street! Well, Mr. President, I'd first like to ask about the upcoming election. Are you confident in your victory?
4: I have been told that I will win the support of a clear majority of electors in the upcoming election. And if that is so, I would thank the American people for their vote of confidence. But I would not hesitate to add my personal distaste for the increasing emphasis on public campaigning by candidates. Consider President Taft. He lost his presidency due not to incompetence or abuse of power but rather because his support was slowly eaten away by Mr. Roosevelt, a man with superior public speaking skills who had no vocation and could therefore afford to travel throughout the country. Coupled with the general sensationalism surrounding elections is the disturbing state of the parties right now. As long as Reconstruction is still remembered, or claimed to be remembered, in the South, it will prove impossible for a Republican to win there. And given the extreme disorganization of the Democratic Party, only extreme circumstances would one get enough support outside the old Confederacy. The Founding Fathers were wise in formulating the selection of electors. And it is up to us to live up to their hopes, not that of zealous press. No offense, Mr Mulligan.
2: None taken, sir. Right then, in the top of the first inning came the game's first notable, and most inexplicable, turn. After striking out leadoff hitter Freddie Lindstrom, Curly Ogden walked Frankie Frisch. Suddenly, Bucky Harris approached the mound from his spot at second base, put on his metaphorical manager's cap, and substituted in George Mogridge. Perhaps only one of the 30,000-plus at Griffith that day could discern what Bucky Harris had seen or not seen in Ogden over the course of nine pitches. Bucky Harris. Nevertheless, Mogridge, for the Senators, and Virgil Barnes, for the Giants, bamboozled opposition hitters all out of proportion to Mrs. Coolidge's concerns. Barnes had set the entire Washington 9 down with three 1-2-3s, while the Giants had managed to eat just a single ball out of the infield. And Mogridge followed suit again in the top of the fourth, whiffing Bill Terry and getting Hack Wilson and Travis Jackson on a pair of identical, smoothly-fielded grounders to Ozzie Bluegie. Barnes victimized his tenth consecutive batter making Earl McNeely look shabby and swinging at a vicious curve. Bucky Harris was up next, and Bucky had had enough of Barnes's perfection. First, Barnes drew one away.
1: Ball.
2: Harris stepped in and out of the box as quick as you please. Barnes towed the rubber and threw. Baseball is a game of moments. discreet moments in which the observant fan is rewarded with information enough to foretell the future. From the moment Barnes unleashed the pitch, we knew that he knew the stubborn ball would not obey and would not break. Then the moment that fat pitch hit the bat that Harris whipped around, none doubted the ball was out, going farther than most there had ever seen. Washington Senators won, New York Giants nothing.
5: Nice. Very nice. Bravo, Bucky Harris. Bravo.
2: How did you come to be such a baseball devotee, Grace?
5: Oh,
4: I've enjoyed baseball for even longer than I've enjoyed watching the strapping young men playing it. Please do not feel it necessary to quote any of my wife's bawdier sentiments expressed during this game. Oh, now,
5: Calvin, no need to play the cold fish. I was just having a little joke with Mr. Mulligan that didn't you say your name was Orville? Yes, ma'am. Ah, like the esteemed Mr. Wright. His fame certainly took claim of that name, didn't it?
2: It certainly did.
5: But you were asking about my love of baseball. And yes, I dare call it love. I must admit my embarrassment at being unable to recall attending my first game of any sort, but I do know that by the time spring of my freshman year rolled around, I was ready to dutifully support our catamounts in every game. As this was in the days before sports writing existed, you lucky fellow, Orville Mulligan, I summarized the fate of our Nine Weekly for the school newsletter. And for me, The best part about Calvin's election to the governorship of Massachusetts was relocating to Boston, then the home of two bona fide Major League Baseball teams and the social cachet to get the best seats in the house.
2: Do I have to ask?
5: You do not.
4: I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Red Sox girl all the way.
2: And you, Mr. President?
4: Having grown up on a farm and later being fully devoted to studies, I did not have much time for playing ball and less opportunity to watch the game in keeping in touch with the strange innate call of baseball to the american however i always felt a fundamental attraction to the game i even tried out for the team at amherst and though i had a certain skill with the ball could not field or to the expected levels and much like grace having access to the top flight play of our country's grandest leagues is a pleasure second to nearly none
2: and what about you miss clark are you enjoying the game
5: To be honest, no, Mr. Mulligan. I am here solely for the benefit of President Coolidge, as I, for one, have never understood modern man's fascination with sports, especially with simply watching other
4: people play.
2: Not even baseball, the national pastime?
4: I can think of dozens of ways to better express one's patriotism. Mr. Mulligan, Miss Clark has many, many enviable skills, but a fine appreciation for baseball is not among them. These Senators may sway her, however.
0: By my calculations, we've got about ten more miles to go, and there should still be at least three innings remaining. We're going to make it. Sure, we just need to let her cool down, and then everything will be, uh, great. After quite a bit of repair work, probably. Mr. Dove, sir, what should we do? Well, Johnson, it looks as though we're going to have to wait for somebody to help us out with a ride. Or repairs. Or to get us to a telephone. But it shouldn't be long. This is the road to Washington, D.C. Somebody will be along in seconds.
3: Uh, perhaps we shouldn't have left the thoroughfare. Mr. Delft? Sir?
2: What do you see as the legacy of the Harding and Coolidge administrations?
4: Good lord, Mr. Mulligan. Some have said that your generation is characterized by an obsession with the future. But you take the cake. I'm just 14 months into serving as president. Asking me that is tantamount to finishing your column on the ball game by the fifth inning. On the other hand, anyone who has risen to a position such as that of President of the United States would have to be ignorant to an impossible degree, or simply lying through his teeth to claim he cared not what history would ultimately say about his legacy. After all, my predecessor, the late Honorable President Harding, was clearly loyal to a fault and that loyalty cost him his reputation by association, perhaps in history as well as in the present. The perpetrators of scandal were brought to justice and all involved in unlawful behavior were expunged from Washington life. Yet Mr. Harding's understated but completely necessary achievements in bringing our country's economy back to normalcy after the Great War, as well as opposing alternatives to the Versailles Treaty and its concomitant entanglements in this so-called League of Nations. I will say this if, by the grace of God and the historians, I am remembered fondly within the annals of history. It will be by dint of good happenstance that I have had the fortune to serve in a time of relative peace. Our country has yet to fully recover from the consequences of epidemic and international wartime obligations, and I remain confident that by this decade's end, we will have put the unemployed back to work. I hope my legacy will be one of using honesty and hard work, along with some good old American ingenuity, in solving our country's problems.
5: Well said, Mr. President. I took your whole answer down in shorthand, just in case Mr. Mulligan chooses not to publish the text in his piece.
4: At two, Enid, this administration is in its third month of its second year, and you're ready to help write my farewell address? I'll just
5: put it in the file for me. Indeed. Honestly, I can't understand how complacent any of you are. All this talk of legacies, legislation, and making history is important. But not here, not now. I may not remember exactly when my fascination with baseball began, but I know the why. Timeliness. For what other human enterprise in our day is utterly free of the bounds of time? What other single endeavor is granted the privilege of eternity to complete? It is magic. But like all magic, Baseball only works if you believe in this prime tenet. There is no past before the top of the first inning. The story is written when the last better falls or the final run scores. Depending on the degree to which you take all this to heart, I'd like to suggest we end talk of history and speculation and of anything outside the pristine chalk lines.
4: Agreed, dear. I would do as she says, Miss Clark. Please do try to enjoy yourself.
5: I would enjoy doing some constructive work.
4: Nonsense! A young person like yourself should enjoy such an aesthetic distraction.
2: <laughs> if the Coolidges were hoping Enid would become a Washington Senators fan that day, they hadn't exactly chosen an ideal time for the changeover. Mogridge walked Ross Youngs to start the inning. High Pockets Kelly, so named for his outstanding six foot four inch height and six foot six if he's not slouching sent a grounder bouncing between Ozzie Gloogie and the middle of the diamond. Furpo Marbury entered in relief of the lefty Mogridge, and so John McGraw subbed in the veteran Irish Musel for youngster Bill Terry. Musel lifted a Marbury scorcher high, high into the right field sky, not far enough to leave the field of play, but deep enough to score youngs. Giants won, Senators won.
5: Okay, that's bad for the Washington team, right?
2: Rookie Hack Wilson, who amassed 19 doubles, 12 triples, and 10 home runs in fewer than 400 at-bats in the regular season, eked out a single to put runners at the corners for Travis Jackson. Jackson slapped an easy-bounder to Joe Judge at first, an easy-looking double play ball that Judge muffed. High Pockets came in for another Giants score to make it 2-1. Wasn't
5: he supposed to throw the ball somewhere?
2: And another unearned run followed, lowering the volume in grip further as the light-hitting Hank Gowdy chopped one for a wicked bounce that pulled gloomy. Wilson hustled around, and it was Giants 3, Senators 1.
5: Is three points a lot?
6: Did that fix it, Mr. Delft? Maybe. No. I've been thinking, Mr. Delft, Maybe this doesn't have to be a complete loss. Maybe we can use the camera to get shots of the countryside. You know, vanishing America and like that.
0: That's not exactly your most lucrative sounding idea, Johnson. Hold on a moment. Well, now, deliverance may have arrived.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen. Having no a problem?
0: We sure are. She was reliable for years and today just gave up. I'm Frank Delft, Editor-in-Chief, Pittsburgh Guardian. Much obliged. This is my assistant, Johnson. Hi.
3: Marshall Taylor.
0: Great to meet you, Mr. Taylor. You two heading to the city? Yes, sir, DC or bust.
3: You shouldn't pick a peculiar route to get there. Why'd you leave the main route?
0: Uh, I don't know, Johnson. Why'd we leave the main route? No
3: idea, Mr. Delft.
0: Oh, water under the bridge now. About how far out are we, Marshal? 10, 15 miles?
3: More like 30, boss.
0: Are you, uh... Are you sure you don't want the landscape picture, Mr. Delft? You don't happen to know anything about cars, do you, Marshal? Of course he does, Mr.
3: Delft. Just look at his. (laughs) Thanks, kid. Just let me take a look at what's happening here and... Good Lord, man. This just gave up today? Where are you coming from? Uh, Pittsburgh? Look, Frank... I'm no expert, but this engine looks like it started a lemon 20 years ago and only got worse. I'm surprised this thing made it off your block, never mind the state of Pennsylvania.
0: Ah, you think it's time to send her to the old glue factory?
3: Again, I'm no authority, so I can't say what's wrong exactly, but I'd guess she's going nowhere for a while. Damn! It happens. An automobile may be sleek on the outside, but on the inside, it's still a loud and unpredictable machine. Now the bicycle? That's a civilized machine.
0: I could use a bicycle right now. Hey, wait a minute. Marshall Taylor? I know you. You're the major, major Taylor.
3: In the flesh.
0: I saw you one time in Philly back in what, uh, 97?
3: 98, it had to been.
0: Right, 98. You must have won the
3: mile by three lengths. I had to, just to keep from getting fouled. Those guys were animals. I'd have taken less punishment playing football, if they'd let me do that.
0: Johnson, this is Major Taylor. He's a world champion, the greatest cyclist of the 90s, and the odds, maybe ever. The Major was so good, he managed to bump space from baseball and boxing in the papers. Gee.
3: Tell you what, let's talk trade. I'll give you a ride to DC and maybe you can do something for me in return.
0: That would be great. Great! Johnson, let's get the camera. Anything major, anything.
3: Well, I started my autobiography and I was thinking about serializing in a newspaper. What did you say the name of your outfit was? The Pittsburgh Guardian. Hmm, never heard of it. All right, Mr. President.
2: Earlier Grace, uh, the First Lady, offered the opinion that pitching in the major leagues was reaching a nadir as compared to earlier eras. Do you agree?
4: Far be it for me to disagree with my wife, far more an expert on the game than I, but perhaps I may answer elliptically. This most recent campaign brought the First Lady and I to a chicken farm. Mrs. Coolidge and I were sent on different routes throughout the site, as I was more interested in certain details of these particular farms' workings. Every farm is different, and I was eager to compare notes with the Coolidge family farm of my youth. As I was told later, Mrs. Coolidge and her particular chaperone happened upon a rooster and hen, shall we say, fulfilling their roles at the biological imperative. Mrs. Coolidge was told that the typical rooster mates some six times a day, to which my wife replied, My, please go and tell that to the President. Meanwhile, For one reason or another, this same fact was imparted to me. I had an intuition that this was the sort of fact that farmhands enjoyed passing on to outside visitors, and that Mrs. Coolidge, the city girl, would surely be made privy to this information. Knowing something of the habits of domestic poultry, I inquired, when a particular rooster mates those six times, is his partner the same hen or six different hens? When I was told that the latter was the case, I readily replied, Go and tell that to Mrs. Coolidge.
5: (laughs) That story tickles me every time he
4: tells it. And no, Mr. Mulligan, you may not print that particular story in your article. (laughs) Miss Clark, giggle if you must, but I would suggest that you also forget that story, or at least pretend as such in my presence. Do you take my point, Mr. Mulligan?
2: That there are two sides to every story?
4: Well broader than that, son. The point being, rather, that any given event may elicit as many perceptions of that event as people to witness it. In the case of the chicken story, we have considered only the perception of myself and Mrs. Coolidge. But what of the farmer's opinion, or the scientists, or any one of the chickens?
5: Now you're certainly putting the cow in fantastical, dear.
4: All right. I will admit to going further afield than was strictly necessary. Back to considering baseball in our time. We may choose to perceive pitching solely as declining. Babe Ruth, the Sultan of SWAT, as you boys in the sports press like to call him, the primary example cited for the moribund state of pitching. Ruth may have hit. How many home runs did Ruth hit this past year, dear? 46. And he also hit 378 impressive figures, wouldn't you say, Mr. Nolan?
2: To say the least, Mr. President.
4: And yet, he also struck out how many times, Grace? Eighty-one. Eighty-one oh. times struck out. Subsequently, taken from one perspective, we may observe that Mr. Ruth oh. hits a home run slightly less often than once every three games. Against this, He strikes out, perhaps not infrequently to the detriment of his team, more than once every two games. One could argue that to stop a Herculean talent such as Ruth's with such regularity could be a sign that pitchers are indeed rising to the challenge of today's big hitters and will someday soon tip the scales back to the advantage of the pitcher. When recalling prior days, I am always careful to be aware of the golden halo we often ring around the memories of those times. But I do believe we are in a golden age of baseball, if I may be so bold. Talent is plentiful enough in our country to diffuse throughout both leagues, and so happily, no single team dominates either league to the exclusion of the others. Our newest stars are ever more enterprising in tactics and strategy. Why well, remember the Boston Nationals teams of the Gay nineties. Lots of hitting then, but with the exception of Cy Young, not one scientific pitcher to be found.
2: Whatever the outcome of this game, I thought to myself, I've learned one thing. Silent Cal is one unsuitable nickname for our president.
0: So why did you give up that racing when you did, Major?
3: Frank, you might not get this, but cycling as a colored man is like playing two sports at the same time. I received less physical harassment in overseas races, but the judges are hardly unprejudiced over there in Europe. By the time I was 30, I felt age creeping up on me and get out before some serious damage was done to my well being. So,
0: why didn't you start coaching or management?
3: There ain't no money in cycling, even if I'd be allowed to undertake such an endeavor. Separate but equal? Isn't so more often than not. But hey, Maybe you can have a talk with your friend, Mr. Coolidge, about that, eh, Frank?
2: In the bottom of the eighth, the Senators fought back again, but it was a moment between innings that sent the fans at Griffith into a true fervor. A double by pinch hitter Nemo Leibold, plus a single by Muddy Rule, and a walk to second pinch hitter, Bernie Tate, had loaded the bases for manager and starting second baseman, Bucky Harris. With an opportunity to turn his team's tie, Harris seized on a 1-1 pitch to nail a grass-cutter to left. Leibold scored, Rule scored, and Virgil Barnes was pulled for Art Neck. When Neff retired Sam Rice, the Washington faithful may have been confused. Why have no one warmed up in the pen when Tate hit the forefront? Who would pitch for the Senators now with Mogridge and Ogden and Marbury gone?
4: Unless...
5: It's him! It's him!
4: Oh, very interesting. I
5: don't understand.
2: It was indeed, as the First Lady exclaimed, him. He upon whom the hopes of all were pinned, like the Moundsman's version of mighty Casey of lore, Mr. Senator himself, the big train, Walter Johnson.
3: Well, something must have happened. If we can hear the park this far out. I just hope it means Washington hasn't won already. We might know if we had a radio. I had an idea for a car radio was told it was impractical.
0: Ah, uh, you're better off without it. Radio is a passing fad. Certainly not for any serious pursuit of the mind. Mr.
3: Taylor, I've just gotta say, this car is certainly swell. Well, thank you, son. Though it isn't nearly as fine-tuned as I'd like. It's the tops. So much space in the back, and it runs so much smoother than, uh, so much smoother. Ah, here it is. Griffith Park, woohoo hoo look at all the cars. If this were Boston, I might spend a while checking some of those out.
0: Good news is the game must still be going. Nobody's leaving.
2: Johnson got Freddie Lindstrom to harmlessly pop up, but Frankie Frisch dampened the hopes of the home fans then with a lofty and powerful yet leisurely and precise hit. In any other park, a home run. This blast by Frisch instead knocked 12 feet off the wall and right. The two-second war between Frisch's blaring speed and the length of Griffith's north-south axis was no contest. One out, Frisch on third, and bubbled up the unholy thought of Johnson suffering an almost unthinkable third loss in a single World Series.
5: If the Giants make a run, we still get to hit again, don't we?
2: Young's got a free pass to first to set up for the tenth time in the series a match of Goliath versus Goliath with the six-foot Johnson and his delivery emanating somewhere north of Charleston facing off against high-pockets Kelly, whose swing starts off the Delaware coast. In their first ever meeting, Kelly sent a Johnson pellet flying nearly out of Griffith in game one. Not this time.
6: Strike three, you're out!
0: Thank you, Major. You are a lifesaver.
3: Thank you, Mr. Taylor. My pleasure.
0: Major, are you sure you don't want to join us? I'm I'm sure I can get you in and it's... It'd be great to introduce you to Cal.
3: Nah. No thanks, Frank. I don't think most folks are ready for a colored man getting casual with the President of the United States in full view of 30,000s. Besides, if I want to see the World Series, I'll head over to Kansas City. Bye now.
0: Okay, Johnson, give me the camera. You just take the tripod and power box. Got it? Yes, sir. Come on, then. Let's get in there.
2: In 21 World Series, no Game 7 had prior to this gone into the 10th inning. And after Johnson pitched out of a jam by starting a neat 1-6-3 double play, and Hugh McQuillen got the Senators 1-2-3, this would be the first Game 7 to go into an 11th inning. How are you enjoying the game, Mr. President?
4: Ah, how could any American fail to be pleased as peaches with this show of excellence today?
5: If the game must run to completion, and the game remains incomplete until the one-team wins, what happens when it gets dark?
4: The shadows are lengthening, but there should be enough time yet. On the other hand, this game has been... Mr. President! Well, if it isn't Mr. Frank P. Delft! How are you, Frank? Keeping busy, Cal.
0: Busy is good and business is great.
4: Good for you, Frank. Grace, you remember Frank Delft? Of course.
5: How are things up Pittsburgh way?
0: Just fine. Dandy and flat out great, Grace. And you look lovely as always. Mr. and Mrs. President, this is my assistant, uh, Johnson. We all call him Johnson, our dick
4: to meet you, Master Johnson. You've just arrived in time to witness your namesake
0: contribute a few more heroics, we hope. Gee. All right, all right, Johnson. That's enough gawking. Get that camera set up. Cal, oh, by the way, thank you very much for coming through for Orville there. Has he been behaving himself?
4: Oh, uh, well enough, I suppose.
0: Ah! What a sense of humor on this guy!
4: As for our arrangement, you know that I do not often partake in wagering, but always try to pay promptly when I lose the bet.
2: You mean you won
4: this interview on a bet?
5: He certainly did, on a bet I advised against. See, Mr. Muller.
4: Frank and I first crossed paths in Boston back in 16, just after I'd attained the position of Lieutenant Governor. For one reason or another, Frank became convinced I was destined for greater things. Three years later, he was in Boston to cover the police strike. I'm afraid I did not have the time to spare Frank on that occasion, so he offered what I considered at that time to be a frankly odd proposition. He bet me that I would be serving in Washington before the Red Sox ever made another World
0: Series. Of course I bet against the Red Sox. They traded Babe Ruth. Who trades Babe Ruth?
5: And at this juncture, I should interject one of Grace Coolidge's guidelines for life. Namely, never bet against Babe Ruth or Calvin Coolidge. And you may print that in your article, Mr. Mulligan.
2: And so this was the payoff?
0: Yes, sir. If I won the bet, Mr. Coolidge owed me one exclusive interview.
2: And if you had won, Mr. President?
0: You know,
4: I'm not sure we ever established that. Johnson, almost ready in there. Shouldn't we wait for the half inning to end?
0: Nonsense, Cal. No time like the present. Strike weather the iron is hot and all that. Okay,
3: Mr. Delft, sir. All ready. Everyone look to me. Johnson, heads up! What?
2: Baseball is a game of moments, sometimes discontinuous moments which slow to nearly frozen, allowing examination of the finer details. In this case, the visible urgency with which Frank shouts his warning. The sympathetic panic in Mrs. Coolidge's eyes. The way the foul ball coming off Irish Musil's bat just hangs there. That stitched horsehide the most charismatic instrument of destruction imaginable. I thought, thankfully, that Jay was at least out of major harm's way. I also thought that Frank was going to have to get a new camera.
0: Johnson, are you all right? Speak to me, Johnson. Take me out to the ball game.
3: <laughs>
2: Musil's single that followed the camera-crushing foul ball was all the Giants could manage in the top of the 12th. The President had given his seat to Jay to join Frank standing in the aisle. But in the bottom half of that 12th inning, every seat in the stadium was superfluous. The Washington crowd got to its feet in unison and seemed determined to say so. A 70,000-footed beast leering over the New York players. This looming presence had its effect on the Giants. In their positions on the field, the New York 9 awaited postures attenuated to carrying the weight of expectations while fighting back the tidal wave of sound. When the number eight hitter, Muddy Rule, popped the harmless duck up behind the plate, the fleeting thought crossed Bentley's mind that he'd soon have two quick outs, but Rule's counterpart, of catcher, Gowdy, dropped the ball. Given new life, a lucky redemption erasing past failure for which baseball is so unique. Rule pounded the bounder in the left field and cruised around first for an easy double. All the better a situation for the batter at the bottom of the Washington order. With few senators left to bat on the pitch, coming to the plate was Walter Johnson. As a longtime pitcher, the big train was naturally not much of a hit. Lifetime, his batting average was right around 205. But these Washington fans did not care one bit. For this, talking of redemption was Johnson's time.
5: Come on, Walter. Johnson struck the ball hard off the
2: infield, confounding Jackson.
5: The ball
2: bounced from Glove, and the shortstop knew he had no play at first. E6 was the scorer's judgment, and the Senators were ready to literally run home the dagger. It's been said a few times in
1: this World Series already, and here it is again. The championship might be on the line right here, right now, on this very pitch. This, dear listeners, is what baseball is all about. We're in the bottom of the incredible 12th inning, Game 7 of the 1924 World Series. Tie score, New York 3 Washington three. Bentley on second. The big train himself, Walter Johnson, on first, after the egregious error by Travis Jackson, the Giants' second of the inning. The batter is McNeely. He's been a bit of an underperformer in this series, just five for 26 to this point. Bentley is on the mound for New York. He's struggling and not getting help from his defense, but the Giants have few options remaining, no game tomorrow notwithstanding. And here's a pitch from Bentley.
2: Baseball is a game of moments. This was one of them.
1: McNeely cracks it to the opposite field. Musala isn't there and he won't get to the ball in time. Rule is flying around third. Here he comes to the plate. He's in! And the Washington Senators are the 1924 World Series champions!
5: Yay! Bravi, oh you Senators, bravi!
2: And now, we wait until next week.
6: This has been Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer, an audio drama podcast from Number 80 Productions and the Sports History Network. Episodes, script and story by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Orville Mulligan Sports Writer stars Doug Fye, Ilana Fye, and Eric Bodwell. This episode co-stars in Order of Appearance, John Roberts, Vernon Poitras, Cademan Holland, and Lennon DeLeon. And featuring Ben Jones as Calvin Coolidge, Fifi Carlisle as Grace Coolidge, Rodney Bow as Major Taylor, and Jen Soliday as Enid Clark. Direction by Eric Bodwell, with honor recording by Don McIver. The theme song of Orville Mulligan Sports Writer is the Dayton Triangles Rag and was arranged and performed by Bruce Smith. Additional original music provided by Silverman Sound Studios and David Lizzo of Dynamo Stairs. Please see this episode's liner notes for the full soundtrack listing. Orville Mulligan Sports Writer is produced by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Series concept by Darren Hayes. Keep your dial locked to this podcast station for the next exciting episode of Orville Mulligan Sports Writer coming soon.